Mumbai to Udaipur by road is a pretty straightforward dash of about 750 kilometers or thereabouts along NH48. The excellent roads mean one can get there in about 10 to 11 hours driving time. This, mind you, is way better than the 13 to 14 hours that Google Maps says you will take. Hello and welcome back to one more episode of India Unseen with me Abhishek as I take you on our next journey which was all the way from Mumbai in the western part of India to Narkanda which is right at the top in the Himalayas, a part of Himachal Pradesh. En route, we went through Gujarat, Rajasthan, Haryana, Punjab, covered close to seven destinations on our way there and back. Like I said, we started off from Mumbai on a lovely December morning at about 4.30 and heading towards Udaipur. This particular trip actually started with a conversation where our six-year-old came asking if there is snow in India. Of course, his concept of India at that point in time was only Mumbai. So, uh, evidently and naturally, as far as he was concerned, our country had no snow at all. Realizing that it's a pretty sorry state of affairs if our kids think that the, there is no snow in the country, we figure that we'd take our next road trip up into the Himalayas and give them a taste of what the snow-clad mountains are all about. So, 1 December, uh, 21st December, uh, as a matter of fact, 2014, we left Mumbai at about 4.30 in the morning, heading on towards Udaipur. Now, the last time I'd driven on this road, which is NH48, it was only till Vadodara. This time around too, the Maharashtra government hadn't disappointed because the state of affairs was pretty much the same as it was two years back. The flyovers that were half-constructed in 2012 were still half-constructed. Most potholes were pretty much in the same spot as they were two years ago. Now, obviously, I can't vouch for the potholes not changing location, but this seemed pretty well settled nevertheless. Thankfully, once we crossed Virar, which is the northern extreme of Mumbai, the roads improved. And this was pretty decent right up till Manor before they deteriorated again. Irrespective, at that time of the morning, it took us only about two and a half hours before we were through Maharashtra and crossed over into Gujarat. The change in the quality of the roads is marked and you need to actually see it and experience it to believe it. Absolutely brilliant, well-paved roads, very well-marked intersections, functioning streetlights, everything that you need to make it a pleasurable drive. By 0700 hours, we were cruising past Wapi. The only downside was that it seemed like everyone and their mother-in-law had decided to drive on the wrong side of the road. So you had BMW 7 Series sedans vying for space with assorted tractors, three-wheelers and some two-wheelers also thrown in for good measure, all driving on the wrong side of the road. I don't get it. Why would you want to do that and put yourself and everyone else at risk? So here we were, Maharashtra, where people more or less followed the traffic rules, but the roads were a holy mess. Gujarat, where the roads are a dream, but absolutely no one follows the traffic rules. We carried on a little beyond Wapi, crossed Surat. Uh, I was sipping on uh, my flask of black coffee and everyone else in the car was fast asleep. I think after our first road trip, Ritika and the kids had all morphed into pretty seasoned veterans of traveling by road and they thought nothing about getting into the car and catching up on 20 winks while we were zipping at 120 to 130 kilometers per hour. By 9 o'clock in the morning, we'd crossed Surat without a single halt. Now, considering in four and a half hours we'd done 280 kilometers non-stop, it was a pretty good start to what was going to be a very 
very long road trip for us. It's about that time that Ranga muttered something that sounded like milk. So we found a decent dhaba a little beyond Surat and halted for breakfast. Now I don't remember the name of the place except that it had pretty clean toilets, food that tasted more or less like what it was supposed to. Plus they had milk and some swings. So Ranga gave it a pretty high rating. In about 45 minutes we were done with our stuff and heading on towards Ahmedabad. Since we didn't have to leave NH4 here at all, the drive was excellent. Now, if you're driving down from Mumbai to Udaipur, ideally you'd want to bypass Ahmedabad altogether and take the road from Vadodara to Godhra and from there on to Udaipur. However, we thought we'd go through the Ahmedabad route because Vadodara and Ahmedabad are both connected by an expressway and we figured we'll make good time. In hindsight, it wasn't such a great idea because we actually took about 90 minutes longer than we would have. But the drive was nice. Everyone was pretty stuffed, so we just continued driving, crossing Ahmedabad, crossed the Gujarat border and headed out into Rajasthan. Now, if the quality of roads very clearly demarcate where Maharashtra ends and Gujarat begins, this again is the same criteria that tells you where Gujarat ends and Rajasthan begins. There is a breathtaking, melancholic beauty to the state of Rajasthan. What's more, the roads are absolutely brilliant. I mean, they're easily a notch above anything that we'd seen so far. The landscape was very stark and we were driving up and down rolling hills. At several places, the road was just a pitch black ribbon cutting through ravines on either side. Traffic had thinned to the extent that we'd pass a truck once every three to five minutes only. Now, while this may not seem like a long time gap, at speeds of 120 kilometers, it means that you're not passing another vehicle for nearly 8 to 10 kilometers. Just think about it. You're on a national highway and for about 10 kilometers in broad daylight, you don't pass a single vehicle on either side. That really says something. Another word on the roads. Like I said, if the Gujarat roads were excellent, Rajasthan was a notch above that. Now, I read somewhere that roads maintained by the BRO, which is the Border Roads Organization, are supposedly the best in the country. Since Rajasthan is also a border state, they obviously have quite an extensive network of roads managed by the BRO. I guess somewhere the state government has probably taken a leaf out of the BRO book in making their state highways too. Whatever the reason, the Rajasthan roads are probably the best in the country. Or at least, whatever part of the country we've driven through. By now, the temperature too had dipped to a mellow 15 degrees Celsius, making it a thoroughly enjoyable drive for us. All in all, this was easily the best segment of our Mumbai to Udaipur road trip. As we were driving, we stumbled across a quaint place called the Hotel Jay Chittor Mawar Dalbati, which is quite a mouthful. Uh, but the place looked like uh, a reconstructed haveli of sorts, or probably uh, a new structure that has been constructed in the form of a haveli. So we halted for a snack. The odometer showed that we had just about 100 kilometers to go and it seemed as good a place as any to halt. The dalbati was pretty decent, although too heavy on the ghee for my taste, but I guess you gotta live with what you get. And the bajra roti was really nothing to complain about. For the price, there was very little to complain and we were soon on our way. Eventually, having left at 4.30 in the morning, we got to Udaipur by about 6.30 in the evening which is not bad at all. It had taken us close to 14 hours, which is what Google Maps had promised. 
However, like I said, if you don't go via Ahmedabad but go through Godhra, you can easily shave off 90 minutes or thereabouts from your overall drive time. For us, it was the longest single day drive that we'd made thus far. The routing that I chalked up for this trip had the Mumbai to Udaipur road trip as the longest by far. And on no other stretch were we expected to drive for more than 550 kilometers in a single day. The fact that everyone was still sorted after traveling 748 kilometers to be precise was awesome. And I thought to myself that the rest of the trip should be far easier. In hindsight, if only I knew. Moving on, we were booked to stay at the Ameth Haveli in Udaipur. Now, this is a Haveli which is across the lake from the Shivnivas Palace or the uh, Udaipur City Palace complex. And it is quite a remarkable place to be staying in. It's about 250 years old, pristine white in color. I, I don't know if it's made out of marble or a white stone, but there definitely is a lot of marble which is used. Uh, and I suspect other stone which has been polished white. The Haveli has a total of about 20 rooms. And the unit that we had was a 650 square foot palatial room on the ground floor. The pretty chambers featured low windows opening up to the Lake Pichola. Now, I must mention that the Amit Haveli is bang on the banks of the lake, so much so that some of the rooms on the ground floor have windows that open up not onto the lake, but you can actually see the gentle waves of the lake lapping up against the wall of your room. And the windows are constructed such and they're so low with a pretty set out that you can lean over and dip your hands in the waters. If you don't want to spring 60,000 bucks to go and stay at the Lake Palace, then I don't think it gets better than the Ameth Haveli at about 14,000 a night. Absolute value for money just for the rooms if for nothing else. I remember Ritika and I sitting at the windows for a couple of hours at end and just talking about nothing at all, looking outside at the lake palace glinting away in the distance, the light reflecting off the surface of the lake in the cold winter night. Really very beautiful. I must also bring to fore one more feature of this place, which is their restaurant called the Amrai. The Amrai opens up to the lake on two sides, uh, with the kitchen and the bar on the third and the fourth side. It's pretty much an open-air restaurant covered from the top with the cool breeze from the lake wafting in uh, in the afternoons and in fact the evenings get very cold. When we stepped out for dinner to the Ambrai that night, uh, they had cigarettes placed next to every table because I guess that's the only way that people like us could have sat down and completed our meal. So cold was it. As for the menu, uh, it has a typical traditional Indian menu which is really spectacular. We call for the tangri kebabs, the malai tikka, dal makhni with chapati and a portion of lal mas. And this is easily one of the best lal mas that we've had. Excellent ambience, brilliant food, indifferent service. When I say indifferent, there's uh, nothing very personal about it, nothing very warm about it, but they get the job done. And honestly, there's nothing to complain about. My only uh, submission would be that the place seemed a tad overpriced like for us it worked out to about 1200 per person for a meal and this wasn't a fine dine by any stretch of anyone's imagination so i thought the price was a little steep nevertheless certainly a meal worth enjoying and after having completed a long day starting at 4 30 that morning we were more than glad to finally tuck in for the night next morning 
post a hearty breakfast again at the Amrai, we headed out to explore the Udaipur city palace. The Udaipur city palace is a contiguous construction spanning 400 plus years, which means that the palace was constructed without a break continuously over 400 years. Most guides and travel sites recommend that you keep aside two hours to visit the palace complex. However, if you ask me, you can easily spend three to four days exploring every nook and cranny of the palace complex. That is how vast and magnificent the place is. Entry to the Udaipur city palace is priced at 250 per person. It is a private palace for all purposes, which explains the street price tag. It is also the only privately owned palace that gets a grant from the Indian government for its upkeep. Now, I'm still trying to figure out what pays for the upkeep of the Udaipur city palace. Is it the government grant, the steep fee for the tourists, or the section of the palace converted to a high-end luxury hotel? Maybe it's a combination of all three, or maybe the high entry fee is to keep out all but the most discerning tourists. The assumption being that anyone willing to splurge on 250 bucks to see a heritage building would exercise a degree of discretion that is desirable. Whatever the reason, the palace is in a pretty decent state of repair. Getting to the main palace complex involves a walk uphill on a cobblestone path. This winds its way from the Tripolia, which is the triple arched gate around the main palace complex building. And as it winds up, you get a breathtaking view of the pristine white lake palace nestled in the waters of the Pijola. Of course, right across from there, you can also see the Amrai in one corner and the Ameth Haveli right adjacent to it. But I guess we could make out uh, these two landmarks because we were staying at that hotel and so it was probably recognizable for us. Otherwise, it just looks like another part of the entire landscape across from the lake. Getting past the gateway arch, you reach the main entrance to the palace, which is adorned by a burnished brass sun gleaming atop the door. The Mevarya Maharanas are Suryavanshis, the Sisodias, which explains the sun god's presence at the entrance. The palace complex is truly magnificent. It is constructed on a hill on the eastern banks of the Lake Pichola and it was started by the then Maharana, Uday Singh II. The original capital of the dynasty was Chittor, but sick of constant attacks by the Mughals, he decided to shift to a safer location. Legend says that a hermit guided him to construct a new capital on the banks of the Pichola, which led to the birth of Udaipur, eponymous with its founder. The palace itself is constructed such that succeeding levels are on different elevations of the hill. Thus, you enter at the base of the hill and even when you reach somewhere right at the top of the palace, which could be the third or the fourth story, the grounds are still adorned with trees and shrubs. This is since technically you are still at ground level, albeit somewhere close to the top of the hill. This clever construction ensures that the palace holds true to all conventional security protocols while maximizing the benefits of the unique topography. We spent about two hours at the Udaipur city palace because we obviously wanted to come back for lunch, you know, having young kids with us. But it was certainly two hours very well spent. I mean, consider this. Several generations of Maharanas have added to the palace complex. Over 400 years, they have actually built 11 palaces as part of the complex. Each seems a continuation of the previous one. 
yet they have something unique in terms of the global influences they depict it's a perfect example of archaeological development through the centuries depicted in sublime harmony while the palace itself is spectacular my favorite part was the section that was dedicated to maharana pratap this section has the story of maharana pratap's life narrated in quite poignant detail through paintings and motifs on the walls and it is heart aching at best the sheer courage and fortitude of the man is a lesson that stands through the centuries in a just maharana pratap was the eldest son of uday singh the second and as such he would have occupied a place in the udaipur city palace however that was not to be in the famous battle of haldighati in 1576 when raja man singh representing the mughal emperor akbar had come to attack the mewar dynasty maharana pratap with just 3000 troops and 400 bheel tribals had taken on the mughal jagannot that was at least 10000 strong even though he couldn't win the day in that battle history still records it as a hollow victory for the mughals for the simple reason that neither could they capture maharana pratap nor any of his leading generals and noblemen and nor could the mughals hold on to the territory that they had captured for more than a few years all said and done maharana pratap realized the dream of ridding the mughals from rajasthan the udaipur city palace may have been bereft of his presence however it may be noted that he fought against the mughals literally single handed save for a force of bheels no other rajput kingdom allied with the new incumbent of udaipur city palace on his deathbed in fact he said to have told his son to ensure that the mughals never ever have control of mewar and that is a promise that his son managed to uphold with aplomb the mewar kingdom was never defeated neither by the mughals nor anyone else it was in fact only in the late 18th century that they allied with the east india company to keep the marauding marathas out but that's another story for another day perhaps when we talk about prataapgarh or singhagarh fort in a nutshell the udaipur city palace sports beautiful paintings depicting royal life of the mewars some spectacular architecture and as you ascend higher into the palace you get outstanding views of the city laid out before you coming back to the paintings this even includes some masterpieces from raja ravi varma what stand out though for my money are the paintings depicting the preparation for the battle of haldighati even today the udaipur city palace has the armor worn by maharana pratap into battle rumored to weigh all of 25 kgs one can well imagine the prowess of the maharana and the horse that bore him carrying on on your journey through the udaipur palace as you wind through you come across the shish mahal the bathing pools the audience chambers coronation halls temples and other chambers that are a part of the palace and then there is the brilliant collection of silver artifacts a few of which are on display even today in the museum since this was a principal region for mining silver artisans were naturally experts at working the metal and this is evident in the beautiful silverware on display at the udaipur city palace each piece is exquisite in its detailing and representative of the skill of the artisans the abundance of silver naturally made the mewar dynasty one of the richest in rajasthan a fact that apparently even drew indira gandhi's attention to the udaipur city palace during the emergency 
Our guide told us that there is a rumor that she had dispatched a delegation of officials to seize the wealth of the Meva dynasty. And legend has it that the then Maharana had all the gemstones and precious metals removed from the Udaipur city palace before their arrival. If you ask me, thankfully Indra came away empty-handed. Score 1 for the Maharanas. One would not be amiss for thinking that the Sisodias only built the Udaipur city palace. I mean, they were at it for 400 years. But you couldn't be more wrong. Among their major achievements is the first ever river linking project in the world in 1669. Can you imagine? Literally 500 years back. And they had built the first river linking project in the world. Maharana Raj Singhji had diverted the Ubeswar River into the Marwani River in order to fill a lake. And here we thought the Sisodias only built the largest palace in Rajasthan. After three tiring hours, we headed back to the Amrai for a spot of lunch and then lounged about in the property for the rest of that afternoon, all in anticipation for our next stage of the journey, which was to be from Udaipur to Navalgarh. So stay tuned, subscribe to our channel and come back for the next leg of our great road trip all the way to Narkanda as we head out to explore one more Rajput stronghold. <laughs>